was flying back from Miami, as I'm wont to do. I was sitting in Comfort Plus. I ran into, I'm not going to say his name. He's an avid People versus Algorithms listener, and he was seated right across from me, this high-powered publishing executive. And what I noted, other than I was glad to see him, was that he was in Comfort Plus, and I think that's symbolic. Couldn't be that high-powered. The future is Comfort Plus, and it's not at the front of the plane. For you know who wasn't in Comfort Plus? This 22-year-old who just raised a billion dollars for his AI startup that's about to eat publishing, probably. Okay. Yeah, well. <laughs> it's like you're proud of eating at Applebee's. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to People vs. Algorithms, a show about patterns in media, technology, and culture. I'm Brian Marcy, founder of The Rebooting, and each week I'm joined by investor and longtime media executive Troy Young and Alex Schleifer, CEO of Universal Entities and noted advertising thought leader. The open web has been synonymous with the internet since it became commercially viable. It's a broad term that encompasses a set of protocols for how the web, or at least how it was intended, would function. And in my view, focusing on the technical specifications of the open web is a disservice because protocols are established in service of principles and ideology. And to my mind, the open web was part of the utopian ideology underpinning the original internet. The key principles of the open web were and are openness, interoperability, and decentralization. Now, the shorthand for that is that the web was meant to do away with analog media gatekeepers and to give birth to an era of abundance of high quality information and entertainment that would be freely accessible. Underpinning all of this were format, the web page, distribution, mostly search, and monetization, advertising. And I would argue all three of these critical features of the open web are in retreat. Business models are destiny, and it's hard to see a workable, forward-facing strategy around web pages and advertising. Instead, the open web, already under assault from the success of the so-called walled gardens of web 2.0, is in terminal decline as it fades in importance and its central role in the internet dissipates. AI is poised to deliver a further blow to the open web as it floods the internet with infinite content, much of it complete crap. And Google is forced to adapt its search approach in ways that are hard to see how they will benefit the open web. In fact, it's easier to see how a chat-focused search paradigm firmly leaves behind the 10 blue links era and it will be a mortal blow to the open web. As we see with the moves from Twitter and Reddit, the prevailing winds are for publishers and platforms to move away from anonymity and free access to authentication and subscriptions. What's more, open web advertising is hard and bound to get harder as addressable audiences dwindle and the disappearance of the third-party cookie and other changes to the digital economy in the name of privacy take hold. So this week, we discussed the fate of the open web and whether it would join other institutions that are under strain and what it means for those in the media business who have cast their lots with the open web. If you enjoy the show, and I hope you do, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As Alex notes, podcasts are one of the last vibrant bastions of the open web, so who knows how long that will last before AI takes over making them. But in the meantime, please do leave us a rating and review. Here's our conversation. I think we should talk 
this week about like institutional decay. But I think institutions are on the run across all of society. But I think within digital media, the ultimate institution is in terminal decline. And that's the open web. I think the open web's best days are clearly behind it. And I don't think it's savable. I mean, we saw this with Twitter and Elon Musk. He didn't get enough attention for the last few weeks. So they started rate limiting. I got rate limited and I was like, thank God, it's going to keep me off this freaking thing. Yeah, wait, wait, wait. What do you mean you got rate limited? So it was like I couldn't read tweets. I was like, I'm in Miami, it's fine. I should be doing something other than reading tweets. In their battle against bots and also against AI, they're locking down the tweets. They're going to push everyone who uses TweetDeck to be a subscriber. And it's clearly part of the shift. Because when you talk about the open web, you, you talk about advertising at the end of the day. The open web has been fueled by advertising. And the weaknesses of digital advertising has basically led to, I think, the inevitability of the decline and fall of the open web. It's my theory. Troy, what do you think? Well, I think for a while we risked having this show become an AI show, and now it's kind of death of media slash open web show. <laughs> well, they're related. It's all the same story, Troy. It's a moment for sure. I would agree with you, Brian. We've talked about it too many times now, but... You're really selling the episode. Well, no. Stick I, with us for another 45 minutes, everyone. Okay, so let's work on something together, totally unrehearsed, right? Let's talk about a system that used to exist that was stable, a media system. What did that look like? And then we moved to something underpinned by the open web. Everybody tried to sort of figure out how to game it, how to make money from it, how to scale around it, how to raise money around it. So that was a system that you're now saying is breaking down. And I think it's our responsibility to kind of hypothesize about what comes out of that. And is it better or could it be better? And what would our ideas be around that? Because I thought about this the other day. I was thinking, so cable was great, right? I mean, I guess it was kind of great. If you were an executive at a cable network, it was great. If you were a consumer, it was kind of not great, but it was okay. You bought the bundle, you got the shit that you wanted. You were excited when a new channel came out, got a couple hundred channels, right? It was a very stable system and you couldn't get into it unless you were ordained. Someone had to let you in. Mm -hmm. And if they let you in, you got to be part of the spinal cord, like you got to be part of the system. You were in the directory, you got the carriage fees, you got the advertising, you got the viewership or at least some viewership, or a right at least to cash the check. And then we went to the open web and we said, anybody can make anything. And the only thing that's going to tie this together is search. And you can kind of game search by getting preference. You can try to get, get into that system by optimizing your content or however you want to look at it, making good content, gaming the system or whatever. And if that doesn't work, you can pay to get in with like SEM. And I'm not even including social. I'm just looking at search. Yeah. So what happened is... The wonderful explosion of creativity. You could be a writer, Brian. You could create your little enterprise. Everybody could make things. There were bloggers. There were influencers. Lots of new media companies. Everybody started to creating. Old media said, we got to get in on the game. All of that. And then now something happened. So what happened? What happened was, I guess, the center sucked all of the money out of the system. And then the other parts of the ad ecosystem that were not performance-based started to atrophy. And now we're seeing problems with yield and advertisers don't really care enough to go direct and spend premium dollars on publishers. So that all fell apart. And then not it didn't fall apart. It just got worse. And then people said, well, fuck that. I'm just going to go out and get subscribers. So we're going to put our energy towards putting up walls, blocking people, 
Now, this includes now preventing AI from coming in and we're putting walls around everything. So it's almost like kind of AOL now. You got to knock before you come in. That means that lots of people that were based on that 2.0 model are struggling to figure out what's next. And really a whole, it's hard for us, Brian, and you and I in particular, because we grew up with a whole generation of people that made a living on that model, right? Yeah. Then AI comes along. I mean, just to add maybe a little bit of more drama, AI comes along and says, we're going to fuck the whole thing up and we're going to eat your content without giving you credit for it. And then people go and talk about it like Diller and Robert Thompson and anybody that will listen is proclaiming that AI is about to kill media if it's not already sort of in tremendous duress. So I'm wondering, this is where I'll, I'll pause and maybe you guys can help fill it in, but it's almost like those people... And this was true in the Canadian legislation. They want to return to system one, which is the broker, the person at the middle, the institution at the middle, be it a cable company or Google, now hands out money to everybody. They say, you are a news organization. We will define what a news organization is, and you will therefore receive compensation for your position in our directory, if that makes sense, right? So Yeah, but the government is going to be the referee. I mean, in this idea, I don't think it's a good idea. I don't think the government getting involved in news is generally a great idea. Generally doesn't go well. And it becomes a political insider game, right? Well, but why? Because you have to be anointed. Because in the case of Canada, the CRTC has to, yeah. has to say that you are a legitimate news organization or whatever. Because there's a system that's administered by the government, which is how you get paid. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that just doesn't work in the United States. We just we don't really hate the government. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. But do you hate the government because it's ineffectual? Because it doesn't It's a whole too... lot of history, culture stuff. I know, but, like... but I keep hearing that about the states. Like, we can't make things work because we're the U.S. S some of the stuff that Troy is talking about might require solutions that you might yeah. be uncomfortable with. No, 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 I understand that. And I think that there is a case for, I mean, look, we're also in a time when the government is more involved in the economy than it has been in really multiple generations, really. Absolutely since Ronald Reagan. I mean, we did not have industrial policy. We would always mock Europe for their industrial policy. And look, look what we have. We have industrial policy now. So the government is going to be more involved in the economy. The Republicans have a different way that it's going to be more involved but, than the Democrats. But that, that is true. I just don't think in the United States, it is difficult for me to believe that the government is the answer to fixing news as a sustainable business. I don't sure. see that happening. Yeah, like you said, the government's getting more involved anyway. Some judge just passed a law that doesn't allow federal agencies to talk to social networks just passed to day or something. Yeah. It all comes back to AI though, I think. To be clear, they, they didn't pass he's, a, Yeah, he's a some law. Trump appointed law. It's some just guy like in Florida. Some right? judge. Some judge. Mississippi? Yeah. Where is he? Mississippi? Florida? But to me, it just shows that both sides want to get involved with this shit. So it's going to happen whether we like it or not. The thing that's going to, I think, force our hand is AI is going to need a lot of regulation. If AI gets regulated, that means media gets regulated. AI is going to be the new pipes, right? It's going to be the new airwaves that need to be regulated. And everybody seems to be into it. Even the people running AI companies want, want that regulation to happen, apparently. So it's going to happen. But what happens to the open web? I think the open web itself, in the state that it was in, like when it first started, which is a, the ability to launch a website and share stuff with your friends, all that stuff is going to remain. But there's not going to be any business happening on it. That's for sure. Right? I think it's going to be just... What, are, what are you guys... What, what, what's, what is going on here? Don't lump me in with Alex. <laughs> I've been keeping quiet. 
What do you mean? Well, what's but going first, on, man? you proclaimed this. This episode was was named. The, what would you call it? It's the death of institutions, and the first one, the big one, is the open web. So the open web is yeah. dying. Why is it? Oh, dying? it's dead. It's well, dead. I, I hey, mean, it's hang like, on. I, I don't think on. the open web. I don't think the open web is. And dying. then Alex said you can't monetize on the open. I, I shop on the open web all day long. No, it's got CB radio isn't dead. My CB radio right. is still around. Right. Well, I don't shop on CB radio. <laughs> <laughs> but Troy, do you think? I mean, we're all speculating here. I don't fucking know what's going to happen. It's a but there's there's multiple <laughs> pressures happening, right? There's multiple pressures that are causing the, the people who own any type of content or data to start closing their doors and requiring some sort of registration for their access. Whether it's free or paid, whatever that is, people are closing their doors. I mean, Twitter, you know, you're unable to find any tweet on Google right now because of the way they're acting. Yeah. I don't know if that's going to continue, but that's one pressure. The second pressure is that there's going to be so much generated content that's going to be put onto the unregulated open web, and that will make the web itself kind of useless unless you have a destination. It's going to make searching the web really difficult. It's going to be using the web really difficult. It's going to become potentially like Usenet. So that pressure is going to make the open web worse for business, I think. Yeah. On the other side, we have other open systems that are potentially interesting, such as the system that this new Facebook Meta Threads is going to use, right? It's a centralized system. Yeah. No, well, it's it's going it's going to be a centralized system, but they'd be using ActivityPub, which is an open standards for a social pub. So technically, all the stuff that you read on Threads, you'll be able to read on Mastodon or, or, wait, or wait, other, wait, wait, other wait. types of clients. Let's be clear with the audience here. So what we're saying is the open web is still potentially an authenticated open web. You can have the open web and you can be authenticated. Correct. Yes. Right. You but it's not open, the open anymore. Web. Oh, no. Your content is not free anymore. Well, it doesn't even have to. It can absolutely be free, but it is gated, which means that it cannot be just like scanned and shared and remixed in the way that it was before. Yeah. When stuff starts getting to be pulled away from Google, the highway into the open web is Google. That's the thing where everybody branches off from to get into their open web adventures. But from Twitter to Reddit to every single site, they're kind of starting to pull away from the open web and put gates up. Yeah, this is an acceleration, right? I mean, the App Store really started this. And this is just, to me, it's just, it's been going on forever. And I think it's hard for people of our age. I bet a lot of people are not going to miss the open web because the open web itself, I think you could say, was something of a failure. And that it didn't live up to its billing. Well, I mean, I think that's kind of I blame crazy the Web 2.0 people for selling a bill of goods with the hold shit. It, hold it, hold it, hold it. Hold on, man. What, what, what is going on here? First of all, what was the bill, the billing? Who, who, oh, 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 yeah. So the promise was that we were going to like, had the gatekeepers were going to go away and we we're going to have this flourishing in which anybody could create great content that would attract great audiences, be super niche, and there would be great business models. Everything would be free. Oh my God, it would be Christmas. Everything was going to be free and it was going to be supported by advertising because Mary Meeker had a slide and it showed a gap between time spent and like budget spent. And those lines would meet and everyone would make money and it would be wonderful. And it never happened. It just became this game in which Google set up Tollbooths and took all the money. And then Facebook came around and took some more of the money. And then Amazon came, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's no. been a disaster for publishers. Disaster. And are we more informed? Do you honestly think that society is more informed now than it was before the quote unquote open web? The open web is a failure. The promise was there and remained there for the longest time. It was just ruined by corporations. Oh, but, you know, no. don't blame the open web for that. The Poor nerds were right. They just got, look, okay, man, well, I, don't maybe... know. I don't know what you're saying. 
I mean, yet here you are as an independent content producer running a podcast independently and meeting people on the airplane that are powerful executives on premium economy with you talking about this podcast we're creating without having to ask permission for it. I mean, thank you. Thank you, Alex. I think it's a nice, tidy argument. I think you're wrong. I think if I looked at people that are, were raised like my son, who's very well informed and was raised on the open web meaning he got his news from sources like Reddit and made his way around this crazy, chaotic... He had a feral childhood in the open web. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. (laughs) And he has a maybe slightly unconventional but interesting perspective on the world that isn't controlled by a single media outlet like it used to be. So I don't, I don't think it's a failed experiment. Other than that, the open web is just a collection of protocols that allows you to build things right. that connect different systems together. Like, but, but I think, you know, I and think, by the way, if you want to create content right now, today, not only on this podcast, but video on TikTok or do a tweet or make TikTok a blog or none of that. TikTok is not the open web. Yeah, you're feeding some algorithm. And yes, that is the version. Like, there's going to be elements of the open web. I'm just saying that the original conception of it d- didn't seem to really work out for anyone. Okay, but just it's maybe good to kind of define that a bit. Your conception of it is what? Free content supported by banners? Pretty much, yeah. Okay, that didn't work very well. Let's actually define it. This is an interesting exercise. I don't know if the content needs to be free, but for me, the open web is defined by being cross-linked so that you can navigate from one part of the open web freely to the other side of it and read and consume content as you go along. Now, hey, the second money needs to be made and it's not 100% ad-supported and you start asking for registration, that system breaks down, which is why a lot of RSS readers or news readers are kind of broken systems because you click on something and it doesn't actually open up. And that's just going to get worse. I agree with that side. So web technologies themselves, the idea of websites, that stuff is becoming much more and more, I think, useful because you can create really interesting things with AIs and new technologies. But this open, meandering web that is interconnected, that stuff, you know, run on APIs, ability to have different tools to read different news articles, that stuff is going away. I think Podcasts are the last open systems. And look at how podcasts are doing. They're doing fucking great. Although nobody's making money. It's useful. I can still send you a link to a TikTok. I still benefit tremendously from Wikipedia. Links are still part of the currency of how we communicate today. You're talking about a small group of people that previously made a living one way where that key monetization mechanism is under pressure. That's really what it is. I think Brian probably hung out with too many ad execs crying in bathrooms and cans, right? (laughs) (laughs) Crying in bathrooms? They're doing different things in bathrooms, I think. (laughs) uh, But I think maybe to reframe it, this old model of you get on Google, you have access to a ton of information, it's all clearly labeled, but you can hop around, you can access it for free. That stuff is going to go away more and more and you're going to start needing to log into things more, pay for things more. I think what what happens there is that maybe owning the brand and owning the destination becomes much more important than owning all the mechanisms to get people to meander in, into your destination. So wait, like what a does podcast that mean? like this becomes, well, I think you have a wait, podcast. Does this become more valuable? Oh, 100%. I'll summarize it for you. It's a punt. And what it is, is it says brand and direct connections become more important than referrals from distribution hubs. 
it's naive and uh, nobody types in people's like URLs. It's never happened in the history. Well, I mean, maybe it happened I mean, when the newspaper to. was delivered to your house, but they yeah. never typed in anything. It came to you. And there was one provider in your neighborhood. Right, but I, I guess what I'm saying is that there was a huge economy of the web, which was people making sense of links sending traffic into each other's sites. So that's what the web was. But right? it was a bunch of blue links. Some of those blue links, people would make a tiny bit of money if somebody clicked on it. And then you navigated the web through free links and paid links. And that stuff is likely not sticking around because a lot of these sites are going to lose a lot of their value. The corpus of information that Google has as far as links goes becomes a little less valuable as unlimited content gets generated. I mean, I'm talking to people who are literally generating 100,000 pages a day with AI and putting them out into this. Oh my God, 100,000 pages a day. That environment's going to get ruined and it's not turning into CB radio. It's going to turn into one of those streets in New York where you have posters stuck on top of posters stuck on top of posters. It's just you're not going to be able to glean any useful information. And then people who have who, destinations so who wins are in this? I guess be. my question is, I mean, obviously tech platforms always win. What is then a hopeful future for, let's just, presume all of this comes to pass and however you want to define it, the open web declines in importance to the point where it's not the central. Point. I think this is potentially healthy. You have these incredible businesses like CNET that we've talked about. But if you look at CNET, 95% of CNET is bullshit kind of evergreen content that they're feeding into the system. And it's probably system. never been more profitable than it is now. Exactly. <laughs> Which is good. Well, no, but you guys, it's, you it's guys, about to it's go not, supernova. Actually. It's not profitable now? I don't think it's nearly as profitable as it was. It's suffering from the same pressures as all publishers. I don't know I would call it an incredible business. It's nowhere near what it was in terms of its okay, profitability. Okay, I'll take that back. Okay, that wasn't my point. My point is that like it got sent off to the SEO glue factory like most brands inevitably do. And the reality right. is this messed up ecosystem, it's better to own a bunch of mattress commerce sites than it is to create quote unquote premium content and sell ads against it. Just stop creating this junk content that is just there to kind of feed that link making money off other links. I think that's going to be flooded. That's going to be junk. But if you look at stuff like what the New York Times is doing, they have incredible properties that people will go there that are destinations like the wire cutter, like not even their main New York Times shit. And they're doubling down on audio. They're doubling down on like real brands, real people. And I think you can build successful businesses out of that. But if you're still in the SEO game or trying to sell credit cards to people, that stuff is going to be gone. That's actually a lot no, of what not. the open web is no, today. It's not. First of all, I thought we agreed not to talk about SEO content as glue factory. <laughs> it's somewhere because between intent and SEO glue factory. We'll have to come up with some sort of compromise. I don't know. I'd ask you every time you think about Googling something niche or weird to solve a problem, you end up on a lot of that content. The best of it can be tremendously useful. How do I change? I don't know. Fuck, whatever you're looking for. How do I do something in my home? But that's YouTube. Okay. That's not sure. that's okay. not a web page. That's gone. That stuff's gone. Yeah. Try to do any search. It's word. arbitrage. Every like model that's worked in digital media has been a form of arbitrage. Okay, let's return to the arbitrage thing in a second. Okay. But because uh, what did you say? So you said that most content online is a glue factory that's going away. Alex said that we're going to be inundated by crappy stuff like that. I mean, someone's going to have to deal with a filter for content that doesn't serve a need. 
the center of the system will have to arbitrate what content is worth your time and what's not. Here's maybe the issue, Troy. Right now, the interface to access content is one interface to access all this content. So you go to Google, if you want to read the news, if you want to find something funny, if you want to see the best 10 episodes of Friends ranked in order, if you want to fix your fucking TV, whatever that is. A lot of that information is going to be just swallowed up by some AI model. So you'll ask the question, it'll just answer. A lot of this, how do I do X? All of that stuff's going away. And that is actually a lot of what media has been doing is padding their content output with a lot of this shit, which is not, it's not right. It's not great writing. It's not, it's just content. And every media company has been saying, okay, well, let's list all the top 10 RAM prices. And here's when all these video games are being released. All this content, which is actually super generic and it shouldn't be part of a media property. All that stuff's going to be out on the internet for free. And even though these pages used to generate a dollar and now are generating 10 cents, that number is going to zero. So all that stuff is going to be gobbled up by AI, regenerated, regurgitated, whatever. Then the rest is like, okay, well, what does a media company do? Why should a media company spend any time on this type of content, which genuinely is for places like CNET is 80, 90% of their content. They don't do any real reporting anymore. So what I'm saying is that stuff is gone. That's the big open web stuff that they were participating in. That's gone. So what do they do? They need to just do better and less and more focused and make value that gets people to go there directly rather than try to beat other folks out in the SEO games yeah. by flooding the system. That's it. This sounds reasonable. I, mean, I don't think Troy, it's bad. It I don't think reasonable. it's bad. This sounds very hopeful view. Well, first of all, that knowledge changes constantly. There's a need to make that type of content. I don't think it is created by the media companies today. It is just regurgitated. It is created by the corpus of data being created on social and all these things. For sure. Yeah. Right. So the stuff that we call evergreen content, half of it's been taken by the AI machine and half of it's created on a continual basis by individuals. That's what you're saying. That's kind of, and then media doesn't Correct. deserve a place there. No, but there's also no money for them. What media started doing is seeing that there was content that naturally existed and was created on the internet, like how to fix my glasses. And they thought, you know what we can do is we can use our huge SEO juice that we already have. Yeah. And, all, and all these pages, we can make a cent. And then let's make a million of those. And then that became the business model. That's CNET's yeah. business model. It was the thing that, I guess my is point gone. is like arbitrage, and maybe it's me being naive. It's like, okay, you got this quote-unquote authority based on being an authority in this area. And now you're trying to basically take that and arbitrage it to something that's much more commercially viable. And oh, by the way, you can pay to create it once. Maybe you have to like gussy it up every now and again, but it's super high margin, way higher margin than the stuff that actually got you the quote unquote authority. I don't blame, you know, look, it's the game, but like the game is changing. It well, seem. it's not really higher margin. It's that the game changed. If you could make margin the same way as you used to, you would you would still be doing that. Margin dried up in one place, and this seemed like a logical place to move because you could do it. And then you you're right. You exploited your brand so that when you said the top ten episodes of Friends, you did it under the banner of an ad that had some authority or of a brand that had some authority. I mean, every tech media you know, tech publication, every time there's an iOS update, will pick out every new feature and it'll say how to change your background, how to install the update. All that stuff is content that is just repeated. And so much of the content on the internet is just stuff that's repeated with a brand slapped on top of it. That stuff needs to go, but that's going to change the economics. And I think 
when Brian talks about the open web, it's the open web as far as it goes for media. I, I think the rest of the world is going to keep using the open web in really exciting ways. I think that's going to remain a fun place if you have the stomach for it. That's <laughs> but, enticing. <laughs> but that model of Google and links paying you a sense and people being just bounced around and generating a little bit of money and traffic for everyone, that stuff's got to go. I don't think there's any money in that. Yeah, I just think... Oh. So what you said is it's kind of hard to disagree with it, but I think that it's more complicated than that because you're talking about basic service content or basic evergreen content. What about what happens with news? News is different. Do you agree? Yeah, for yeah, sure. I agree. Okay, so does that mean that if you were maybe the New York Times is, is such an outlier, not a good example, but if you were the LA Times you decided that the only way that you could make money was to appeal to a market that existed outside of your local market. I mean, you had to participate in the national story or the international story. You had to own domain expertise around entertainment and you had to be a thoughtful news provider like the New York Times is across the board. Because that's the only way that you could build an audience that was big enough to fill your funnels mm -hmm. and pay yourselves with advertising. How does this change the game for news providers? I would say this with news providers. Take the LA Times example. Why does Jay Penske, why did he end up basically monopolizing the four-year consideration ad dollars? Why didn't the LA Times, why didn't they buy Deadline? Why didn't they buy Hollywood Reporter? Why didn't they go into like B2B and look at themselves a lot broader? So a lot of the problems that these newspapers in particular face, they brought it on themselves by not changing. And they coasted for way too long. And that leads to being lazy. They had a basic monopoly of the local market and that made them fat and lazy and they have reaped the whirlwind. So I think that outside of these mega publications like the New York Times who might build a brand that's so broad that it kind of like applies to many things, I think you need to start becoming a destination. If you told me the LA Times, if you want anything around Hollywood movies or local LA stuff, that makes sense. I think they could own that. I'm not going to go to the LA Times to see what's happening in the fucking France uprising or what's happening in Ukraine. I might bump into that if I'm reading something else, but I think destination is really important. Like know why you're going to a specific place. And as this stuff is so expensive, I think a lot of these guys are going to start becoming much less broad and start owning the stuff that they can own. Because what's going to happen to news and very likely this could be the thing that saves Twitter if they get around to it, is that news is constantly generated by people everywhere. Like Twitter is actually a great place to see what's happening live. And if you have access to that data with an AI and you can in real time collect the news and update people individually in a way that they like, you're not going to go to the LA Times for news. The same way you don't go to newspapers right now to read how the stocks did. That stuff is all going away. Like every day somebody right now says, here's how the stock market did. And they'll write all this stuff. Or newspapers used to have the times where ships would come in or all that stuff. That's yellow pages. All that stuff is gone. So if I was a publication that says, what do we own? What yeah. do people want to come to us for? And what can we be uniquely good at? Everything else, stop wasting your time on. You're not going to make any SEO money on it. Nobody's going to read it. It's kind of cliche, but it's about being essential. At the end of the day, I think where local news and news in general sort of went adrift is they didn't maintain their essentialness. 
I guess, in, in people's lives. And if you look at like the Gannett or McClatchy or anything, you look at these local sites and they're regurgitating the titillating stuff from around the web. And it's, that's because the business model, whether it was print and then it got carried over to the web, is the more pages... Literally, the more pages of shit you had, the more stuff you could put on the pages and the more money you could make off them. With newspapers, you could buy a block of ad and with pages, you could get maybe 10,000 people to look at your how to uninstall iOS 14 and make $4 on it. That stuff's gone in, in the next five years. It's going to zero. I think that's great. All that stuff is useless. It's waste. It's landfill. Great. I'm happy. Troy, you seem less happy. <laughs> yeah, Troy. Troy's Troy's, all, in. <laughs> Troy's lobbying for the glue factories. <laughs> no. He's like, hold on a sec. I think I ever counted this. One of my favorite like early career moments was someone at some IAB event was talking about the crappy banner ad. This guy from an ad network stood up and was like, I take offense to that. This industry was built off crappy banner ads. <laughs> so let's not besmirch the crappy banner ad. I mean, Troy, where's your head at? I was trying Just to think where this all started. Just give me the 480 by 60. <laughs> is that what the I thing was, 480 by 60? I don't even remember. The digital landfill point is irrefutable. My summary on the whole thing is there's a culling going on. And through that, I think a lot of the stuff that you call non-essential can be done well. And there will be providers of that content. And I think it exists along a continuum. It's not either how to install iOS or a take from the New York Times. There's a lot of area in between all of that that people will provide. It will be increasingly, I like your, what did you call it, essential? I think that's a great word for it. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to be known for something and we're all going to be less reliant on a traffic system that could be gamed. And we talked about this before, it's kind of getting old, that in the process of the aspirations of digital media companies will be moderated significantly. That's Welcome it. to Comfort Plus. That's what I'm saying. It's fine. It's fine there. You can still use the business class restroom. Just don't be obnoxious about it. Just slip up <laughs> to your business and go slink back to 11C. It's okay. That's it. We just saved media. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's talk about the FTC going after Amazon, because this is another sort of institution of, of digital media. Like if you think about Google basically ran the content side for search. But I think on the commerce side, it was Amazon. And Amazon, like Google, if you look at the rankings of trusted brands, they both are at the top. I think a lot of the struggle of modern antitrust and modern antitrust is going after both Google and, and Amazon and others, but like those two in particular, is that a lot of the quote unquote harm that is being alleged is hard for consumers to see. And the old antitrust playbook of where's the consumer harm doesn't really apply, I think, in the view of Alina Khan or others who are taking a more expansive view of antitrust. So apparently the FTC is about to prepare a big case, not like one of these little ones where they just try to get a couple hundred million dollars of fines against Amazon for how it runs its marketplace and how it squelches competition there and does nefarious things like, oh, it'd be a shame if you didn't end up as a recommended product because you didn't buy enough ads. That would be terrible for that to happen. Not that any tech platform would operate their business like that. I mean, come on, <laughs> they would never do that. They would never abuse their dominant position for their own financial gains. First of all, what did you think when you saw this? I know you, you had seen the reports about this, Troy. I mean, Amazon is a, I would say it's like a beloved brand to some degree. 
We talked about it last week with the move against Amazon for its quote unquote dark patterns, but this is something else entirely. I'm not sure if the average person dislikes Amazon. Oh my God, they love it. And I think that the check and balances of things like the FTC against corporate power are important. I think this will be a total fail. The issue under investigation has to do with Amazon privileging marketplace sellers that use their fulfillment services. And Amazon will make the argument that if you do that, they can put multiple products in a box and send it to you in Prime and get it to you in a couple of days so that the whole fulfillment infrastructure solution becomes a real core part of the value proposition to the consumer. And that marketplace more broadly enables lots and lots of small businesses to be successful. And they're a very successful infrastructure provider to little companies. And I think that it will get packed up in court for a long, long time. And I think it'll ultimately be unsuccessful, would be my mm -hmm. take. So this is like Microsoft 2.0 when the FTC went after Microsoft. And that was the DOJ that went after Microsoft. Well, Microsoft, it worked out though, because Microsoft had to unbundle the browser and didn't win the internet. They didn't do that. The market ended up solving for that before. I mean, the government, it takes so long. I don't know. If the thing hadn't happened to Microsoft, I think we might not see Google and Apple's dominance where they are. I think mm -hmm. it's quite big. But... Yeah, the Amazon thing, people really love Amazon. Even people who don't like their practices on an ethical level for whatever reason love the product. And so much of that is the experience of the logistics of it, like getting a product and then returning a product. And it's so much better than the alternative that I think most people wouldn't understand how Amazon is harming them as a consumer. I think people who dislike Amazon mostly like it, well, there's got to be a cost to this, either environmentally or because of the people's working conditions, but the service to the consumer is fucking fantastic. And so it's strange to me that Amazon's being attacked it's not strange to me. I understand why Amazon's being attacked. When you compare it to companies that people use every day that they actually dislike, like Comcast or AT&T or Verizon, which seem to be companies that have really terrible impacts on consumers. As a customer of these companies, I always feel robbed. You know, it's, it's hard to cancel. There's so many dark patterns in the way they do things. They overcharge all the time. So I think to most consumers, seeing them attack Amazon and not Verizon or Comcast is kind of baffling. And I don't think it's... Yeah, and I think that's the hard part is that the case is really... It's almost like a B2B, not B2C case, and that the harm is downstream to consumers because the harm is to competition. And I think one of the hard parts with, if you want to call it like modern antitrust, is that it's not the old antitrust that's just looking where's the consumer harm in that a lot of these digital markets operate differently and they become not winner takes most, but they become about winner takes all. But isn't that their only degree. lever though? It's funny the way you describe that, because if you ask folks about what they feel Amazon is doing wrong, there's really two things that usually show up. One is like worker experience, you know, how the warehouse workers, what their experience is like. But the other one is the fact that Amazon will launch their own Amazon branded products based on the data that they see on their store. That's the big one that people would maybe rally behind. Like, hey, this mom and pop shop created this thing that you can stick to the back of an iPhone and it sticks up on your table. And like six weeks later, Amazon had a copy and we're selling it and promoting it above them. That feels like something the fulfillment center prioritizing just feels like 
Yeah, that sounds like a better way to do it. It's going to be delivered faster and in the same box. Yeah, I dig that. It's a right, funny but I'm just angle. saying, I'm it's just saying the harm that the FTC is going to be alleging is going to be to competition. So it's not like, oh, leave aside the prime stuff. This case is not going to be arguing that they're directly harming consumers, that they're indirectly harming consumers by squelching How? competition by the way that they've structured their business model. Because they've made a business model that basically privileges one set of merchants over a different set of merchants. And the merchants, because Amazon is de facto e-commerce, okay, leave aside Shopify, they're going to argue that this market, it's like anyone who's accused of antitrust tries to say that the market is far larger than it truly is. We're a little mom and pop business here in Seattle. But isn't that what every retailer like seems to do this? You want to be on the top shelf or you want to be here. You have to do that for us, like Walmart and Costco yeah, for and sure. Trader Joe's. And everybody still loves those companies. Right. The difference is when you have a shopping center every like few miles, it's annoying and not a problem. When, when Amazon is the only shopping center, and we saw this with Walmart, with the, the controversies that Walmart went through at a different generation. Where was the consumer harm there? They were getting rollbacks. I agree with you, Troy, that I think it's really difficult to win in the court of public opinion because it's like really nerdy antitrust stuff. And to the regular person, they're like, what? I can't believe I ordered something this morning and it showed up this afternoon. It's great. Wish they used less packaging. I'm still going to yeah. order 10 of 10. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's say that they did successfully put pressure on them. What would happen? So they would not privilege merchants that use their fulfillment services. Those merchants would do what? They would do it themselves or they would go to Walmart or they would charge more or... It's a classic bundling thing. I mean, they're, they're claiming that in order for us to be able to privilege these people, they have to use our fulfillment thing and they'll just be under a consent decree. And it's a normal, I don't know. Are you guys still stuck in this thing that the market solves every problem? The market is not some like magic <laughs> box. I'm not into that. It just feels to me like, Jesus, you come here. I was just in Europe and you come to the US and most of this country doesn't have 4G or LTE, let alone 5G coverage. It's impossible to get the internet. You know, every telecom provider... Oh my provider, God, have you used the internet in France? The internet basically doesn't exist. No, well, hang France. on, hang on. Comcast is a terrible company. We can't have access to like, all of that stuff feels so anti-consumer. And you pay $100 a month for a line, you still get robocalls every five minutes. And this is where they go to protect consumers. Consumers are getting absolutely screwed by just even connecting to the internet. And this is the one thing that they actually like, and they're going against it. I'm not saying I'm like pro-Amazon. There's a lot of things wrong with Amazon, trust me. But Jesus Christ, give people internet first before you go after Amazon. There's a lot of worse actors out there, I think. Yeah, I think they can make a case though with, I mean, and I think with sympathetic characters of small businesses that have been screwed over by not paying off Amazon. I mean, I don't know. It's possible. It's just, even if they win, like, look at the internet. Know, like, just, everyone, just everyone like, why who's successful on runs a, a protection racket. Like, Amazon's running a protection racket, the same as Google runs a protection racket. Facebook ran a protection racket. It just feels arbitrary to go after these guys versus all the other problems. It's we hard have. to break up the mob. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, I mean, you know, it is. Gotta do some Rico. All right, let's get into good product. I have. Well, did one, you? I ahead. thought you had a. Didn't you have a third topic? 
There was three. First, we talked about the open web, and then we also weaved in these crazy like news bargaining code legislation stuff. And then I thought you wanted to talk about tech bros and their sort of fake yeah, expertise. Okay. And if you want to do that, I'm not. I'm not into that. I would like to tell everyone about my Ukraine expertise because you know. All I right, have Troy. Become... How do you think the counteroffensive is going? <laughs> I'm a little concerned, <laughs> and I don't know why this guy Prigozhin is up in. Belarus and oh he just happens to be taking like 5,000 of these battle hardened dudes with him I smell something suspicious I was up early getting coffee in Miami and like the other fellow middle aged guys were like in the lobby while everyone else was sleeping and this was a prime topic of conversation middle aged men love to talk about what Prigozhin is doing like up in Belarus and I mean, it's, it's just quite- another plot by the military industrial complex to keep war funding at levels up. And, well, isn't it, you know, isn't it have- to keep the news cycle and uh, mass media complex yeah. from talking about Hunter Biden's laptop? Because I thought that that was why they right, orchestrated too. all that stuff. The New York Times and- is clearly in the tank. They've been in the tank for a long time. <laughs> You oh, they were happens? in the tank. I'm reading a book about like the Iraq war. I love how everyone's like sort of memory hold that one. We're obviously right. talking about the all in podcast amongst other things, but what makes all these people go been stupid? Why is it that becoming, I think wealthy is one thing, but then having a platform quickly makes you turn more and more psychopathic. Is this going to happen to Paul us? Paul Krugman had the thing about this a little bit. He's hit and miss on a lot of stuff. But he had something about, I mean, I think the obvious one is that once you have success in one in one realm, you end up like extrapolating it and thinking sure, that you're sure, sure, successful sure, yeah. in all kinds of things. But one point that he made that I would think like Elon Musk would have a foreign affairs person on his staff. No. I would. Like and Jamie you know Dynan doesn't come up with this stuff on his own. He's kind of like you a know team. why? I, I think a lot of these folks just have the a hunch board. and surround themselves with people who legitimize the hunch. I think that at some point you stop being surrounded by anybody who calls out what you're saying. I think there's something to that. There's something else, though, that's bugging me right now. And it's got to do with this notion that you're no good on the internet on Twitter, on your podcast, if you agree with everybody, if you agree with mass media, if you're part of the consensus. It's like way cooler to be conspiratorial or punk rock or outsidery or to see things that other people don't see. Your wealth gives you privilege to go down those rabbit holes and to question the logic of mere mortals who don't see the world as clearly as you. So the incentive in all of that is to look for the conspiracy. And then to kind of milk currency out of your point of view, which is different and more informed or more Mm -hmm. sort of like sleuthy than anybody else's. And so what you're getting, and I think that there's another thing that's a real casualty of everything we talked about in the long first segment we did, which is there was a tidiness to mass media that created stability. I mean, you could have the Fox point of view or the CBS point of view or the New York Times point of view, but like they were all kind of in their lanes and we all were part of those cohorts. And suddenly like we have, what's this great term that is sort of the RFK Jr. thing, the spirituality, conspirituality? Do you know this term? It's hard to say, actually. (laughs) It's sort of like this weird unholy blend of ayahuasca, fake spirituality, and conspiracy mindsets together with a certain kind of political bent. I think that massive fragmentation of modern media creates chaos. 
would be my my theory. Yeah. But I think this, this is also the decline of institutions in some ways. And I don't know why, again, I'm not anti-tech, but it does seem to be like pulled in that area. It's not like bank CEOs are coming out with all these latching on to every, I won't no. say conspiracy theories, because now that too is a conspiracy theory. All these like outre opinions. I mean, it used to just be like, you read the Wall Street Journal and The Economist and you nodded your head, but there seems to be something in the water particularly out by you, Alex. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, and the funny thing is, it's actually, everything's coalesced. Like, it seems that all these guys have a very similar outlook on the world. And the conspiracies are being kind of really collected and connected to each other. And it's funny how it starts with certain things and it quickly goes into vaccine denial and it goes into climate change denial and it, it becomes pro-Putin for some reason, or at least not quite anti-Putin. And like all these are things which feel like they're more contrarian than anything else. There's the mass media, which yeah. is like, this is what people broadly believe. And so we're going to go against that. That's number one. And the other thing is, it's, it's upside down world. Like, all of these guys are acting like victims. They're talking about the elite. Like literally people from their fucking yachts <laughs> talking about how the elites yeah. are coming after you. And that shit is crazy. The one guy's in is like Milan Castle. It is, it, yeah, it is insanity. I don't, I think there is a mind virus and it's not the woke one. It's whatever fucking Elon Musk gave to everyone when they were sharing that joint because they've all <laughs> lost their fucking minds. But I will say this, like I, one of the problems, I was reading The Economist this weekend. I was like, uh, it was about Putin and the Wagner thing with Prigozhin. And I'm like, I know exactly what this is going to say before I read it. Like I read enough of The Economist to know, I'm like, I know exactly what they're going to say. And they said what they, I thought they were going to say. Maybe part of there's, it is not, that. there's nothing wrong with that. I know. Like something's like, well, that's just kind of what it is. That's uh, it's what it is. I, I think there's this really unhealthy feedback loop right now that's turning these people who were lucky. You know, when you're very lucky in life, sometimes I think you try to create a narrative for yourself that makes you feel better about the life you're living and the privilege you have. And I think if that's amplified too much, it can turn you into somebody who thinks you're an actual genius that knows everything. And then you've got David Sachs. Yeah, that's why the best place to be is Comfort Plus. <laughs> Although I will say, no. You're insulated from ever falling prey to any of this stuff. I flew business class, and for the first time in my life, I was on the second floor of a 747, and there's something about being on the second uh, floor of an airplane that just trumps everything. I don't it's want to fantastic. be up there. I'm scared of heights. <laughs> <laughs> Those nine feet make a huge difference. But it, it does make you feel, back to this thing for a sec, we're starting to live in a kind of abstraction of reality where the narrative is more important than the truth. And yeah. so we construct and find things that allow us to sort of have fun in this simulation or to be unique or to stand out or to kind of dunk on other people. And it's worrisome to me, actually, because when it's connected to real world policies and bombs and shit, it's worrisome. Yeah. What I wonder is that if there's a half-life, and I also wonder people who trade in those things and participate in them are just very loud. And I don't think there's as many of them as we think. I think they're just louder because it becomes a gospel and it does become spirituality. It's like you meet a teenager who's just discovered atheism and you're like, shut the fuck up. I get it. Yeah. And I say that having been that person. But I wonder if there's a half-life to this stuff and if people will just tire of it. Because it is tiring. The all-in podcast, I never 
love the guys on it, but I used to find it entertaining, and now I find it kind of exhausting. And I've heard a lot of people say it. Well, everything um, exhausts. It's kind of like the woke anti woke stuff is on the decline. Yeah, everything I've seen that is on on the decline, and it didn't even last that long. So no, I mean it was kept alive by people who thought anti woke would put them in the president's seat. I yeah. I don't know. I hope we're smarter than this, and this stuff just becomes nothing. And it turns out that people like Elon are not looking as smart as they used to. If you ask a lot of people, who used to respect him, but it does. It has real world impact, especially when it comes around like vaccine, climate change denial, and yeah, fucking bombs. Yeah, Trey, are so. you going to endorse DeSantis or the Bitcoin mayor? Do I have to choose? <laughs> All right, we'll cover that next week. Do you have a good product? Oh, you told me on the threads you had good product this week, so I left it up. Oh, there. okay. So I could do my, my Miami good product? If you do a nice setup and stuff, and yeah, make sure it's worth it for us. <laughs> great, it's great. So it's like a million degrees down there, and at the place where we're staying, they have a plunge pool. It supposedly goes down to 50 degrees, but I think by the afternoon because the sun was so hot it was like in the like mid 50s by that point but the plunge pool to me is the future with climate change i think the hot tub has seen its day and that we are going to at some point in the next 20 years there's going to be more cold plunge going on than there are like hot tubs and it's a refreshing product you got to dunk you got to go all the way under the really hardcore people stay in 10 15 minutes but if you just go in for like a couple minutes it's good Highly recommend This it. just says turn into the Huberman podcast. Yeah. I've never listened to that guy. Is he any good? He's, he's, he seems good. I mean, I, I can only listen to about health stuff for this long, but it's a good product. We were at a festival all weekend. It was like 100 degrees and there was this shower that was just connected straight to the river with that seemed to have had some sort of runoff from the glaciers or something. And it was so cold and you would just overheat and then drop yourself in there for 30 seconds and it was, it was a great experience. So yeah, yay for cold plungers but you know the fact that we're a bunch of dudes on podcasts pitching cold plungers is not going to surprise anyone so like yeah. <laughs> alex what what festival were you were you at i'm not gonna share it but it's a small festival up in yosemite you're not gonna share it what is it like like i've got music i don't want stalkers i don't want media executives there telling well, me it's, how good it's over is. what are they gonna wait for next year i don't want anybody like rolling on molly saying how much they love banner ads you know? <laughs> <laughs> but do you have the last thing for you? Do you have any summer movie recommendations, Alex? Brian? Mm. Oh, I want to see the Wes Anderson movie. It's about it. I mean, that's basic. I got to say, summer movie recommendations. Excited for the new Mission Impossible movie because I really enjoy professionalism and things. When people are really good at something, even if I don't love the movie, I think partially that's why I loved Avatar 2 so much. There's just so much human creativity and ingenuity and everything is so well done. And I think that there's something about Tom Cruise production, whether it was Top Gun, Maverick or stuff like that. Every part of this thing is going to be incredibly well done and people are going to be at the top of their game. And for me, watching those is nearly like when you watch a basketball game and everybody's top form. That's what it feels like. And that dude is a fucking maniac and he knows how to make a spectacle. I won't watch franchise movies for ethical reasons. Like, I think that the only way that Hollywood changes is if it gets a message and people start to boycott this approach. Because I understand the de-risking. I understand everyone wants to have a franchise they can milk forever. To my taste, I would rather have more like actual movies like we used to have instead of regurgitating the same freaking thing into... I don't need to see another mission. I don't need 
No, no more Mission Impossible. How old is the guy? Is he going to be like 75 doing this stuff? No, he just Get he just it. announced that he wants to do it until he's 80 if he can. No. I, not I don't only will Avatar, I watch I the new Cars Impossible movie. 19. I don't want to watch any I will shit. watch every Mission Impossible movie from the first one before I watch the new Mission Impossible. Actually, I mean, you've got a point. Disney's kind of in trouble. All their latest movies have been hits, and there were a couple of originals in there, and also a couple of the Marvel movies. Sorry, but, their, you know, their latest movies have been hits or, or uh, have been flops. Sorry, yeah. so, sorry, flops. And right after the latest one, Elemental didn't do well. They announced that they were doing a new Toy Story, which was one of those series that should have and could have ended, and, and it'll likely be good. But yeah, I agree with you. I think I think Harrison Disney's Ford needs is to be 80. one to watch. He's eighty. Are, why are we? But dude, why are we forcing like, this man to do this? He's not being forced, man. If I was eighty, and yes, somebody he is. Paid he me was to being be paid movie, twenty-five million dollars. That's forcing someone to do something. But he, he's not going to be able to spend that money before you know, like before he wraps it up. So, like, he's got a good it, fifteen years. People seem to forget that everybody always says money is what drives people. The fucking Rolling Stones don't go on tour for money. U2 isn't like, they like doing this. It's the only thing they know how to do. Harrison Ford likes acting in movies and being Indiana Jones. I know, but it's, it's terrible for culture. It's one part of it. It's a very popular culture, but it's just, it's terrible to have this regret. I actually think, it, I, I gotta say you're wrong again. Sorry. <laughs> go figure. Listen, I think that there's right a tremendous. Listen, two things, Brian. I have for you. I think there's done well. There's a tremendous comfort in franchises: James Bond, Mission Impossible, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Star Wars. It connects generations. It gives you something to look forward to. You invest in the characters. So I, I think if they're done thoughtfully, franchises can be wonderful things. Besides having obvious business benefits now. For you sitting in Comfort Plus, I have a show recommendation for you. Okay, go ahead. We don't have, I don't think we have the screens, so. <laughs> it's terrific. Well, you can watch it on your phone. Download it. Download it on your Amazon tablet. Okay. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's on Apple TV. It's called Hijack with Idris Elba. It's oh. shot in real time. It's seven hours, and it all takes place on a seven-hour flight. Oh, fantastic. And the guy's up in first class. Idris Elba's, of course, in business slash first class. And the, they're brainstorming how to stop the hijackers on the plane. And the people in the back are sitting uncomfortably. Not only are they uncomfortable, but they're subject to a hijacking. Yeah. And they only Yeah, but water. you know what? The people in first class are going to need the people like in the back of the plane in order to save the day. They can't do it. They've lost their, their oh, yeah. fastball long ago. They've been fat and happy. You're gonna need some bullet shields. That's a that's a. You're gonna need someone who's like amped up in like 37E and like a middle seat to come up there and like <laughs> start to throw around fists. By the way, I recommend this show called Jury Duty, which is on Freevee, Amazon's free TV thing. It's also available on Prime. It's a kind of a mock documentary that follows the jury duty and everyone in the court and the jury is an actor except one person who's a real person. And the show is incredible and it goes places you wouldn't expect it. It's surprisingly good-hearted. Mm. It's pretty great. Have you guys been on jury duty by any chance? I'm not allowed. I'm not American. Troy? Never, but I'm really? American now, I'm so, the, so I will. I'm surprised. I've been called multiple times, I, and I get on them. Oh, but do you tell them you're part of the media? Well, that's why the defense chooses me, but the prosecution uh, chooses me because I'm like a middle-aged guy. And then you say you're a podcaster. <laughs> yeah, a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you're excused. 
<laughs> well, all right, let's wrap it up. I guess, guess that's right. right. This was a long one. Okay, good luck. Good luck, Tanya. Tanya. <laughs>